Well, welcome everybody, especially the newcomers. Glad to have you here. Um, Dr. Rick Petronella is no stranger to this ministry and to Thayer and I. We have known Rick personally and professionally for many years. He has spoken here for many years. He is very credentialed. I'm not going to read to you his full bio because we'd be here all night, but just a little bit about Rick. He is the clinical director of Choice Treatment Program. He's got a doctorate in philosophy of psychology at the University of California, postgraduate studies in organizational developmental psychology. He's got a doctorate of religious education. He's got a master's of science psychology, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, Rick currently is the founder of Compass Consulting and Affiliates and Choice's treatment program in Sandy Springs where he serves as a clinical director clinical supervisor, and he's also in private practice. He is going to speak tonight about how to improve emotional connection with your addicted loved ones. So I'm going to pray for Rick, and then Rick, I'm going to invite you up to the, to the table. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for Rick and his beautiful wife and for the experiences that you've given him, both professionally and personally, and God, how he's using those experiences to help other people. We just pray tonight that you will speak through Rick in a mighty way, and his words will be your words, Father. He'll be emptied of himself and filled with the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we will leave here uh, educated and encouraged, Lord. We just look forward to what Rick's got to say, and we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Did everybody get a handout? I have to say, and my wife would attest to this, I have labored over this talk, and it was an easy one. I mean, came, came up with the title pretty easily and, and, and shared with Fair what I was going to talk about. But as I begin to get into the whole issue of, of, the, of just the, how do you improve an emotional connection with your addicted loved one, it became much more, I think, uh, I'll use the word complicated, but actually it became more of a, um, of a, of a, of a statement of, of really how do we how do we improve that relationship? Anybody have any ideas? No. How many would say that your relationship with your loved one is strained? Yeah. How many would think it's damaged? Okay. Yeah. We're that we're all there. Um, when we think about uh, the whole concept of improving a relationship with addicted loved one, what has to happen is I think we have to look at ourselves and look at really what, what, we're, what we're dealing with in a way that really comes back to us versus them. Because they are, they're not fully themselves. They're medicated, they're, they're, they're drug-seeking, they're very self-centered. They've changed. They've changed to this. And so to try to negotiate a healthy bond ain't gonna happen. And so what we have to look at is how can we ourselves adjust to what's happening in a way that we can preserve who we are and understanding the necessity of really staying at our best knowing that we're, we have a tornado in front of us every time they walk in the room. And yet how can we not be impacted or riled up or disturbed by behaviors that they may or may not even be aware of they're doing and, and yet we lose ourselves every single time that to a point of just, just exhaustion. And so we have this inner fight of someone we love and brought into this world and care for so dearly, and yet at the same time, we, we hate everything about what they're doing. And it becomes maddening. 
It, it will take years off your life if you let it. And part of it is how do we preserve ourselves with the unknown of what's going on with our loved one? There is a, a verse I want to open with. And it's on the first page of your handout. And you're going to see an awful lot on this handout. And I, I apologize, but I, I can always, I, I, I'll give you a lot of content. I'm not going to read it all, but I'll, you'll have it to take home and kind of re review with, with, after, after we're done tonight. This is a verse in James chapter 1. Detesting of our faith. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the, the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now the part that becomes at times conflicting when I read this at times is if we don't have faith, we become, we, we, we become almost a double-minded man. And so and we, when we don't have faith, we can't expect God to answer, answer our prayers. But really, even faith is a gift from God. We have to pray for the gift of faith. There's a story in the scripture in Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 14 through 29, where this father uh, was, uh, had came, brought his, his, his son that was demon-possessed to the disciples to pray for him. And they prayed and prayed, and nothing happened. This guy's having all kinds of just convulsions and contortions and screaming and yelling and just out of control. And then he, the guy basically said to the disciples, I'm done with you, I'm going to go ask the head man. And he went and asked Jesus, Jesus, will you pray for him? And Jesus said, do you believe I can heal your son? And he paused. He said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And by nature of that very act, the Lord healed his son. And it's a beautiful story of a man that was really out of control for many times. It, to me, it personifies those of us that have grown up with a loved one that's addicted. They have tantrums, they scream and yell, their, li their lives are threatened, this guy's throwing himself in fires, he throws himself in water to drown, and it's the demonic influences inside of him that this poor father's tormented by. And so when you begin to look at the dynamic of that and you look at that story, here's a man that's spent, that's wore out, that's exhausted, that's beside himself. And through that whole, that whole story, he goes to the Lord because the disciples did not cut it. And then disciples scratch their head and say, how did you do this? How, did you, how come it worked for you and not us? And the Lord based paused and said, there are times it requires prayer and fasting. And there's elements of intensity and involvement that often have to go above and beyond what we're normally used to doing. Now, in the prayer and fasting, it becomes a determination in our heart to truly deny ourselves that God himself would be, would be glorified through the experience. It's hard to be proud and hungry. It doesn't work real well. But at the same time, it, it sends a message to the Lord of, our, of how, how desperate we are to hear from him, how desperate we are to connect with him. 
And in that context, when we share the story again, I would say this is a good parallel to many of our, our wayward children that have struggled and struggled and struggled and, 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 and so much what they've taken out of us in that same context. So when I asked the question, you know, how, how, do we, how do we improve the emotional connection? The primary thought we have to keep in mind is where are we at in that relationship? What has it done to us? How much has it taken out of us? Are we at such a point of helplessness and hopelessness and despair or even frustration that we become apathetic or indifferent? It is, we have been through the ringer. We have been wore out. And the situation continues and continues and continues and continues. And we are just at a point of complete helplessness. So when we look at the, the, the process of what that means, how do we improve the connection, we first have to become aware of, of we, have to, we have to make a choice. You can't ask the, your addicted loved one to make a choice. You can't ask them. They're not gonna, there's no reason to ask them. But what can we do about it knowing that they're not going to cooperate? We have to begin to assess really where we are and being honest with that. If we have anger, if we have resentment, if we have extreme just uh, unforgiveness in our heart for what they've done, which is absolutely understandable, we have to examine ourselves and get ourselves to a better place before we really begin to engage to see if we can improve the relationship. And that often is a divine intervention. It's not easy because you're not giving back anything. All you are is giving, 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 and not seeing any kind of change. And it becomes so hard to manage. So part of it is we have to look at ourselves and begin to make a choice, you know. We can't let the addicted loved one uh, 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 dictate our lives. You know, we can't allow that situation to, to feel impossible. We have to learn to find a way through this and stay proactive stay empowered, stay encouraged, but most importantly, find a peace in this that often is the last, last place you'd imagine it to be found. Because in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the, the, the fiery furnace, God is there. And it's hard to even imagine him when there's such a disaster going on in our lives. But he is there. He's right there. And all we have to sometimes do is quiet ourselves and call upon him and know that he would answer in ways that at times we, 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 we don't tend to believe it'll happen, especially how we're feeling. But according to scripture, he's made promises. And his promises, he's not man to lie, the son of man to repent. His promises are <coughs> ye and amen. So understanding that is what can we do to begin to make a shift here instead of carrying resentments and the hardships, instead of just being defensive, how can we be proactive? So the more we look at this, I think it, it, it involves us to become, as gut-wrenching as it might be, that we have to be intentional with our days and our actions. And we have to look at a world of possibilities that may have always been there that maybe now we're ready to see how to apply them, right? You know, we're moving forward rather than staying stuck in a situation to get our loved one in, uh, to a better place. What does that look like? It looks like boundaries. It looks like limits. It looks like self-awareness. What stage would you say your addicted loved one is at? Now, those of you that are familiar with the trans-theoretical model, it talks about, uh, you know, pre-contemplation, contemplation. It talks about, you know, um, the, the preparation, action, and maintenance. And it deals with, when you talk about pre-contemplation, like what state is our loved one, our addicted loved one at? Are they at a state, pre-contemplation, that would say, there's nothing wrong. Life's fine. I'm not causing you any problems and I'm not, I'm in a good place. There's no, I don't need help. 
It's, it's working. Or are they toward a place of more of, of a contemplation? Contemplation is where they're thinking about, well, maybe I do need some help. Maybe this is not real right, but I'm not yet ready to not stop using. I see there's things here, and all of a sudden mom and dad are pointing things out or others are pointing things out that I'm not myself. But don't you dare bring them up to me because I'm not ready to stop, but I kind of see there could be a problem coming. So that's kind of up to a 30-day process that they're thinking through this. What begins to happen at that point is, we'll talk about this more later, is they become almost, um, they become ambivalent. that They don't want to make the changes, and yet they know they need to. They're mostly afraid that if, a, if you all go to them and say, we, we got to talk, this is, this is not working. You are not yourself, and we need to discuss the, your behavior and, and, and the substance abuse. It's just not working for us. They fear that because they fear, and, and I have talked to literally thousands of addicts, in, in the work that I do, and I can say that very, you know, very liberally, that they are afraid that if they're called out, they're going to have to stop a lifestyle that's worked for them. They found a way to have peace. They found a way to feel confident. They found a way to fit. And it's a world, though it's an illusion, it's a world that is, they've adapted to that their threatened would be taken away. And there's many variables here. It's not just the high, it's the provision of what this has done to give them coping skills, though they think, they, they think they're doing better with it, which they're not. But the fact that you call them out, they're afraid that their world will change by you calling them out so they get angry with you. And they push back so quickly that you kind of pull back not knowing how to handle that, and they're glad that you stopped asking. At that point, you know, it, it kind of rolls into from a contemplation it's it, into a place, obviously, which we look, we preparation for treatment. They, they think about that for up to 30 days to three months. And then it goes into more of, a, of an action plan that maybe they do go to treatment and they realize they do need help. They may not fully invest, but they know that they need help and they're beginning to learn some things because they've committed to the treatment. Now, it's a dynamic, you know, we find that, you know, we, we talk about fake it till you make it. We, some kids are put into treatment be, out, of their, out of their will. You know, many will go to treatment to, to avoid legal problems. Many will go to treatment to, to uh, appease parents in an intervention. They're not really invested, but being in that environment does begin to break down the facade a little bit, that illusion that they had, that they assumed somehow that this world is, is perfect, it's untouched, and, and it works for me. They begin to see, after periods of time, how people's lives do begin to have losses and problems and financial issues. And they begin to see it, but they don't ever think it's gonna to happen to them. Now, when you look at, at, at page three, the uh, action and the maintenance stage, maintenance has to do when you began treatment and you probably have a <coughs> six months treatment, there's gonna be a relapse process that is very, very prominent. Boy, we hate to think that. You spend all this money, you <coughs> treatment, they have 45 days, 30, 60 days, 90 days sober, and man, they're back using. There is nothing that hurts more because our hopes are up and we're believing we turned a corner and we're hoping it's gonna be a better day and things seem to be going the right way. They're talking about it, they're, they're sober, their eyes are clear. There's a sense of hope that's starting to show, but by nature of just their own indecisiveness or temptation or just lack of skills, they slip back into using. And as we know, those that have had some treatment and slip back into, into using and glean some things from it, it often isn't as fun as it used to be. And they'll tell you this. 
if anything, it's, it's almost been robbed of the fun because they learned something they shouldn't be doing, but they're going back to it. So it's kind of a cycle dynamic that they have. You know, relapse sobriety, relapse sobriety, relapse sobriety, and hope at some point what begins to kick in is enough sanity that they begin to see, I don't have to live this way. And most importantly, we as parents are not going to live this way. We have much to do with the motivation of that loved one, especially if we have the purse strings, especially if we're the ones that have provided up to a point that they still have a level of dependency on us. And part of that is we're not going to continue to enable. We're not going to continue to, to appease. We're not going to let your anger and rage towards me. Okay, you can have it. All we do is reinforce the inevitable at that point. Can anybody relate to anything I'm saying? So, so there's a context here. If you go to the next page, you can kind of see the, the dynamic of the, of the stages of the model here. And it deals significantly with, you know, the, con the pre-contemplation, contemplation, determination, and then it has to do with the action plan, and then relapse is part of it. And I, I, I keep it there as, as part of a fact that I hope and pray it never happens, but it, but it tends to. But that's okay. That's okay. God can turn that around in a way in, that right now it, it, it may not have... Sometimes that, it, that relapse is what it takes for them to snap out of it. And that really is what we hope for mostly, right? Um, so what is really the goal? What is the goal that we have in trying to help our loved ones? You know, the goal is to move the addict alcoholic out of a sustained talk by just talking about the problems into a change talk, doing something about it. So we can talk and talk and talk and talk and we hope somehow it's going to help. And, and we spend hours and hours and hours listening to why they do this and trying to understand it. But sustained talk does not produce change. It doesn't produce conversion. What change talk says is, is there, that we now have to do something about it. And as parents, as, as, as um, family members, we are saying what you have and what you're going through has ruined all of us. And I can't stop you from what you want to do, but I am definitely going to say we're setting some boundaries and limits that we're not going to continue to feed this the way we have. And we set in motion consequences. We set in motion different, different boundaries and limits that before weren't there. And so we begin to rock the boat a little bit with them. That's where the ambivalence becomes a little bit clear. You, you, you know, I think we all could probably say with our loved one, and, and I, I have had a son that's been through treatment and many, many treatments. And I often said about a year or two when I was here back, I always say my son, I lost my salvation twice over him, you know, I'm kidding. But that's how much he takes out of me, you know. And I hated what I became. I hated it because it, it was everything I didn't want to be. And it was to a point that er, there was an argument every conversation. It's like a conduct, it's, it's a conditioned response. It, 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 there was no peace. And it just is like when he walked in the room, it's, here comes a tornado. And it was just exhausting. He's 6'3" big old guy, you know, I can't take him anymore, he's bigger than I am. So there's a whole level of dynamic that's changed. And I, I will say, I, I, I'm, I'm, I was afraid of his size because he, he would dare me. And, you know, I just had to pray for peace and to pray to break that sense of, of hostility there. Because most addicts have a level of anger within them that they can't control. And that's part of the using of, oh, they can experience a relief, they can experience some peace, they can experience some confidence with that. So when you have, let's say we have a loved one that isn't gonna budge. They're not gonna stop, they're ambivalent, they know they need to, but you know what, hey, leave me alone. I'll just do my thing, you do yours, which is not how it works. 
what I, what I have put together is what I call the narcissistic collapse. And the narcissistic collapse has to do with when our, when our loved one is using, they become very self-absorbed. They become very narcissistic. It's all about them. They have no regard for the people in their life. It's all about them and they're using and continuing to use and feeding that addiction. And it looks very, very selfish. So how do we get one to have a narcissistic collapse? By nature, they're using and the narcissistic dynamic that's happening, you begin to take away from them things that their world is no longer the same. You begin to shift stasis. You break stasis. When stasis shifts in a family system, everybody has to change, including them. Now, there's still dynamics that they have, um, they, they need us. They'll never say they do, but clearly they do. And so when they begin to realize that you're no longer going to allow certain behaviors coming in and out when you want to, stealing from us, all the things that they're doing, you begin to put consequences in place. They begin to realize that they're no longer able to maintain this, this ideal environment that's been created. They, their ego begins to break and they begin to realize, oh my gosh, they're not playing the game anymore. They're not doing what they used to do. And it does create a fear. That fear often will look like anger and they will rage at you and they will throw things and they will storm out of the house and they will threaten to take their lives because they're so angry that you're gonna change a system that was working for them. As a parent, it is so hard to watch this. It'll kill you and most of you know what I'm talking about. But there's a point you have to just hold your line and prayerfully ask God for strength and peace because when they begin to realize they're not changing, this isn't gonna go the way I thought it is. All of a sudden there's a weakening in their perspective and they do begin to become a little less confident and a little less uh, full of themselves in ways that mom and dad would never stop helping. Mom and dad love me too much, blah, blah, blah. But then they begin to realize they're not showing the level of love. They're not showing the level of grace. They're not continuing to give like they used to. They're doing what they said they were going to do and they're not helping. That's when the, you begin to break down the foundation of the narcissistic uh, dynamic where all of a sudden their whole perspective begins to shift and change. And it's actually a very good thing when it happens. Um, it's just something that, you know, the world that they once do, they no longer have control over it. So in understanding that, it's now a matter of can we hold the line? Can we stay strong enough to realize as much as it kills us to see this happening, we have to hold the line. Now it's, it's a thing that really forces us to look at our own heart and look at ourselves in a way that as upset as we are, they're blaming everybody for what's happening, you know, that they're, um, that, you know, they're angry at everybody, and we feel responsible for this. And they are, they're in many ways recklessly out of control, blaming, angry as can be, and you really want to be away from them. Yet at the same time, you don't want them to do that, and wouldn't it be easier just to give them the money? Well, how many have done that and regretted it later? Right? So we, so we know that doesn't actually always work. But I think what has to begin to happen is that level of comfort has to create discomfort. You know, there has to be a place that the change begins to happen and we don't go back on it just because we're, we're tired of their anger and rage. We have to hold that line until they realize it really is different. Now, who would think to improve a relationship, you set boundaries with that person? Who would have thought that to have a better relationship, you're saying no, you're taking things from them, and you're tired 
of the game. You're tired of the cycling of addiction. You're tired of the way you're, they treat you. Who would have thought that would improve the relationship? It does, especially as that person experiences sobriety and gets further down the road. Then there's a sense of admiration and appreciation because you put up with so much, so much that they basically uh, doled out at you. And they began to hear it from people in their groups. They began to hear it in meetings. They began to hear it from neighbor friends that said, you treat your parents horrible. I did? Yeah, I, I guess I did. Now that's the goal. He is how long can we hold that position until that happens? As long as it takes. As long as it takes. The loved one has to begin to realize that any attempt to change is, 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 is on them, not us. They can't assume us to change. And they'll work us, and they'll do what they can, and if we hold them accountable, they're going to do all they can to kind of come down on us and blame us for things. By this point, we are so exhausted, we are so spent, we have lost who we are, we have lost any sense of self, we're just kind of battle-weary in kind of just a daze, getting through one day at a time. And so what I find is when we look at patterns of codependency and enabling on the uh, sixth page, let me, let me read a simple definition. This is a composite definition of, of, of codependency. And tell me if you can relate to any of this. Simple definition. Codependency is, is that it is at the heart, it, it is at its heart a, a, a boundary confusion stemming from dependency seeking approval of others and people pleasing, feeling bad or selfish when not giving in to someone else's need, needing or demanding, rescuing others from their own behaviors or choices, covering for their mistakes, getting caught up in others' drama, financial overspending on others and their mistakes, perpetual nagging and attempts to change someone, enduring the painful behaviors of others, toxic relationships, over-identifying with others' pain and their problem to help hurting to where helping is hurting. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, I did too. And I thought, wow, that says it well. But what we look at in that is the cost of trying to maintain and manage a relationship with a loved one who's been using takes everything out of you. And we're not even aware of it. We're not even thinking about it. It's just happening. And as it begins to happen more and more, we begin to fall into a, into a suit of, of survival and adjustment and survival and adjustment because you never know what you're going to walk into or what's going to walk in the door. And so there's, it's forget who we are and we're constantly on a reactive management to try to keep peace or try to keep some level of, of just sanity in the house knowing that, that they're going to come home in, in an uproar or they're going to come home in a way that you dare not say anything or there will be an uproar. What, what is that? So I, so when we look at that, when we look at the dynamics of codependency and enabling, we begin to ask ourselves, what are the treasures of our soul? What are the treasures of the, our soul? And what has happened to it? When, when I think of the treasures of the soul, you know, I've written a few things here, you know, and how they, how, they, how they got lost in relationships. We're not connecting with our friends anymore. We're not doing things like we used to and just have fun and, and, and just be with somebody and come home. Life is just harder. Life is difficult. Nothing's easy. You don't want to hang out with your friends because they're going to ask you, how's your son or daughter doing? I don't want to talk about that. You don't want to talk to, you just want to stay isolated and removed from everybody. You know, you, 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 what about our feelings? 
When's the last time you even asked how you're feeling? And, and we're, a we're able to attend to that in a way that if you're upset that you can just relax and find peace. We don't even know what it is to feel because we're so in so much in the world of the other person, we've absolutely lost who we are. You know, what about attitudes and behaviors? We, have, we tend to almost deteriorate from a level of sophistication and functioning into a much more primitive, reactive person to the point we don't like ourselves. We're, we just don't like anyone or anything because life sucks right now and we don't even know what we can do about it. That's the fallout of, an, of, an, of enabling and codependency. It doesn't work, it doesn't help, it doesn't get us to a better place. It absolutely does more damage and deterioration of the entire household dynamic. Everybody is suffering in that home because, every, because the addict calls all the shots. And it's a walking on eggshells and we become afraid of that person and we don't know what to do about it. The truth is we do have all the power and we do have the ability to make choices to do something that this can, this, this can be intercepted and this can be broken. When we talk about empathy and compassion, you know, when you think about your loved one, empathy takes on the pain of another person. Compassion is to care but not carry the pain. I like that. We can empathize for the hurt of our loved one, but that doesn't help. It doesn't help. If we have compassion, we're empowered to do something about it. Enabling paralyzes, I'm sorry, the, uh, empathy paralyzes us and keeps us in, 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 a, in a dependency state, in, uh, really weakened and powerless. Compassion, we see what's there. It's like Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw his people and he activated a plan and took care of them in ways on the need. If he had empathy, he wouldn't have done anything. Think about that. Compassion is empowering. Empathy is, is, is an emotional place of taking that on, but it doesn't, it doesn't bring any benefit. And right now in a battle mode of where you're at, you've got to have, a, you, you have to be proactive. You have to be compassionate for their hurt, but also not tolerate it because the vortex will suck you in so fast you'll be back where you were and have no idea how it happened. Sometimes we're so tired, even if we've held the boundaries, held the boundaries, held the boundaries, and they just keep wearing us out, wearing us out. Fine, take it, go. We have done ourselves the worst, worst disservice because it literally the work we did to build to that point has now become forfeited happens at that point is they, they, they figure, wow, I got away with it. So they don't, they're, that, they're that much freer, that much less accountable, and for, for whatever period of time, they don't need us anymore until they, until they run out. It doesn't mean when we make those mistakes, we've, we've ruined everything. It means we can regroup and say, because here's what happens. We resent ourselves for doing that. We resent what they did by taking the money and running. We reinforced the situation that we were hoping would never happen again. Because we're so tired, we just say, go do it. And understandably so. No one's going to blame you for that. But if we're trying to create a different dynamic and a different outcome in the house and in, in one's life, we have to hold those boundaries no, much, no matter how much we love them and want to just make their life easier and ours. We've got to stay the course. And through that, there's a point of really, you know, the, 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 the determination of wills. It's a point where you have a stronger constitution than they do, 
they have a control issue to keep getting what they need, but they're in, in a deeper level much more insecure, much more afraid, because they've developed a dependency that they gotta keep feeding now. And so there's a dynamic of fear that's constant there. And that's why you get anger so quickly. And so part of that is we don't have to buy into that fear. We don't have to buy into the anger. We just have to find a way to not let them get to us. Easier said than done, but it, is, it can be done and it works. It is by far one of the greatest outcomes when you, when you begin to study different styles of relating with an addict. When you cut them off and don't continue to feed the source, there is a breakdown there that begins to happen because they're no longer able to sustain what they wanted and what they felt and they realize now you mean business. And it actually causes a higher regard of respect for you from that child. Believe it or not, you won't hear that for a while. They'll cuss you upside, one side down the other. But there's something that they see different that they know you're doing. And you, they'll tell you down the road, but they're not going to tell you that moment. Okay, so dealing with our loved one that's, that's abusing the alcohol or drugs. The goal of dealing with our loved one is to change the environment in which the, addict, with which the addiction thrives. So in other words, the environment is by point of maybe the way, the, the way things were happening have to begin to be changed up. We just have to change up. I had one family, I remember, they actually reached up. He went away on this, on this bench with a couple friends and, and then and mom and dad basically said, we're gonna, we're gonna change the house, we're gonna change the house around. The entire living room and all new furniture, they had it carpeted, and he came back and didn't even realize what had happened. And he, it worried him, and that was a good thing. Because he's like, what's going on? Why'd you do this? Where's the couch? What happened to the carpet? What, what, what are you doing? That was insecure. Their, their world began to change. And yet you just stay strong and smiling and you don't have to explain anything. But you can become firm, but loving and strong and, and, and committed. And God will give you the grace to do that. When we lose is when we engage them in, in the rant level that they're at. And that's what becomes really the, the enmeshed mess that we've lost our boundaries and we lost ourselves again. But you can pull out of that and regroup and try once again to redefine the situation. I'm not gonna, uh, we're gonna move on. There's enough there, like, there's a lot there, but you can come back and read that on your own. Page seven. When we begin to ask ourselves how to hold that boundary, right? You know, stop helping them use the drugs or alcohol. When a question or concern arises, ask yourself, what, what am I about to say or, 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 or do, what am I going to do that's going to make the, the, the addiction more difficult or more comfortable for them? Think about that. Every time you engage in a conversation, you have to ask yourself, what I'm about to say, is it gonna make them easier to use or is it gonna be more uncomfortable for them to use? That's the mindset we have to begin to adapt. And we really have to pray for the Holy Spirit to give wisdom and discernment in that moment. Luke um, 21.15, Jesus is talking to the disciples before he sent them out. And it's, I love this verse because he says, because we know the Pharisees and Sadducees are just trying to discredit them. And there must have been something that one of them said 
to Jesus and he said, I will give you words that the adversary should not be able to gainsay or resist. I'll give you such words, guys, you'll, you'll stupefy the Pharisees and Sadducees. They won't be able to come back at you. That is my prayer for you. Proverbs says, a word fitly spoken is as golden apples in a setting of silver. James says, if we lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives us all we need and holds none of it back. Believe that. Part of us to even get to a point to hold on to that is we need to first get a break and heal a little bit and clear our heads, clear our hearts, and find ourselves again. And come back to those treasures that we once talked about, the feelings and, and having a good time and getting out. Come back into who we are and no longer ever again let someone take that from us. That's changing stasis. That's changing the dynamic that really puts things at somewhat of a, of a uh, off-kilter. Off we know that someone addicted to drugs moves through the stages of change. They need, they need to see the, uh, the need for change. That only can happen is when they know that what was working before isn't working, and now they're beginning to realize, I've got to change my game here. It's not working. And they'll, they'll try different things. They may even, you know, one of the hardest things I find at times is when, when, the, when they're so nice, they took the trash out? Who took the trash out? You know, it's like all of a sudden they're picking, their room is clean. They're saying, hi, mom, hi, dad. Oh, my gosh, it feels like heaven. I, did I die? Am I heaven? <laughs> it's like all of a sudden they're kind. And we really hold on to that, wanting so much to believe there's a, God's honored this and there's a miracle underway. And sometimes I think they try it, but they can't sustain it and they, because they have no capacity of coping skills to manage that. And then they'll go back to using again. Or... They want something. They want some. Hold your wallet, guys. Hide the purse. Because they're not going to ask others to take it. If they know if the answer's been no, of course. One way or the other. Credit cards, money missing, whatever. It's, it's a very sad thought that our kids would do that to us, but it does happen. Things, things at the pawn shop, it, it, it just never in a million years would you think. But we are living it. And so that's part of where we want to so much believe it's, it's, it's sincere and genuine, but at the same time, we know not enough time has passed to really believe that could be different. It's not that we don't want to give it credence, but we definitely want to just, we don't want to be naive either. And one of the things we begin to find too is, you know, drug alcoholics see themselves as a victim and is under the illusion that everything bad that has happened is because of someone else, not them. You heard that before? And they know, how to, they know how to guilt you. They know how to make you feel the dirt. They, have, they can cut you down with their words and their languages that you never would have talked to a dog that way. And some of us buckle with that because we can't handle it. But that means you're getting to them. It's a good thing. If they come at you, you know that you've touched a nerve. Don't say, okay, you can have what you want because that's movement. And that's where we want to stay and continue with on that regard. So making the most of a difficult situation. Keeping our boundaries is one. Realize not every battle is worth fighting. There's times you don't engage. No matter, they want to engage you. They want you to come back. And understand it's not worth it. And just walk out of the room and not let yourself get caught in that. Um, don't try to argue and fight with them. Um, 
again, to reinforce the boundaries, consequences, sharing their behavior. And one thing I've learned too is, you know, we could say that you've hurt me, you hurt me over and over again. But I found when, when we say, you have, hurt, you have hurt our family, that tends to have more of an impact. And I will hear that later by those that we're working with. That you said I hurt our family. I didn't think I was hurting our family until you said that. But if, they, if, they, if we say you're hurting me, they know it. And they're gonna keep hurting because they want something. But when they hurt the family, that's, there's a different loyalty dynamic that's there that they don't want to hurt the family. They don't think about that bigger systemic uh, abuse, but it's, but it's there. Is that shaming them? Say again? Is that shaming them? By saying don't, you're hurting the family? Mm -hmm. I think it's a fact. Shaming them would be, you SOB, what do you think you're doing? You're a loser, you're a nobody. That's shaming them. But you are hurting the family. That's a fact, an absolute fact. And it comes out in, 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 in impact papers when you begin to share, you know, if that one's, if you're doing an intervention where they begin to hear what's, what, what each child, each family member has suffered because of it. And that is very powerful, you know, especially if they're in the right mind. Let's go down to uh, where we have number four here, you know, to open up the different ways of addressing them. You know, tough love, consequences, sharing how their behavior hurts the family. Um, there is a, a process, you've probably heard of the, of the, of the drama triangle. And the drama triangle has, it has with it, you have it there on the next page on page eight at the top. You know, I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, I'm not okay, you're not okay. I'm not okay, you're okay. And then I'm okay, you're okay. When we look at this, when you look at the red, you, you see the words, uh, 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 you know, uh, persecutor, victim, rescuer. The persecutor will attack. And what does that look like? As a parent, you, you become so enraged at times on how that child treats us, you do attack them. And you do want to cut them off at the knees with your words. And you're so tired of them hurting your wife or hurting your husband or hurting the kids that you just, you, you just flesh out and that becomes something that later we regret doing. When we do regret it, we then regress back into oftentimes the rescuer. So then we become an enabler because we're so sorry we hurt them so badly that we give them what they wanted because we feel bad because we yelled at them, yelled at them. Crazy, but we do it. What about the victim? We then become almost helpless, we become overwhelmed, and we become, it's almost like, you're ruining my life. People only ruin our life if we let them. You know, it almost sounds cold, it almost sounds harsh and unfeeling to have a life when, when your loved one's going through that. It isn't. As long as they can make everybody miserable and keep the stasis going in misery, they got everybody where they want them. But if you're moving on and you're gonna go on a trip to Disney World or you're gonna do this and, you're gonna, and they're not being invited, all of a sudden, there's, what, what's going on? Why, why, why are you treating me this way? There was one case I'm working on now that's actually over in Houston, and, um, and this woman's been using, and, 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 and the parents won't go, won't, won't go over to visit her because she's using. So she went, these parents went to the other daughter's house in California, and she's found out that uh, they went there. She was livid, and she called me because I'm doing, the, I'm doing the family work, angry. How could they go? How could they abandon me? And she won't hear the fact it's her own fault, how she treats them. 
And all the parents are doing is trying to enjoy the grandkids. But they have to see that life goes on. And that stirs something in them that they don't like. That's good. We don't want them to like certain things. So now in the context of their discomfort, change can begin to happen. So when you look at the, 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 uh, the, the triangle, basically, if it's persecutor, if it's victim, if it's rescuer, that's what we become in a place when we're not keeping our boundaries, when we're not holding our own. When we, that we, we, we fall back into a place of being helpless and frustrated and powerless and overwhelmed. That's the ugly side of us that we let begin to percolate to the top. But if we can keep our boundaries and understand what's going on, we can actually say, you know, you treat me so poorly, but you know, I'm okay. I am okay, I'm gonna be fine. And you know what, you're gonna be fine too. You're gonna become the son or daughter that I know you can be. That blows them away because you're not engaging at the level of chaos, craziness, and dysfunction that they would expect. For you to come to a point to say, I'm okay, I'm a child of God, God loves me, this is a trial, he's gonna give me what I need to get through this, and he will too give it to you if you're willing to ask for it. That's not what they wanna hear. But it keeps you in that white zone that you see them okay and you, you see yourself okay. If you go into, I'm not okay, you're not okay, it's just kitty by the door, everything just blows up. And so ask yourself, you know, it's, uh, in the past I would ask people, you know, where do you see yourself parking the most? Persecutor, victim, or rescuer? You don't have to answer that, but you kind of wonder, right? Okay, what about the tips for, for the, uh, surviving here with an addict? Number one, we have to come face to face with the reality. Learning how to deal with the reality is the most important first step in surviving when you, when, when you love an addicted person. Although it may seem easier to ignore and minimize, what's going on or where you can continue to believe that things are going to get better. Things will not get better just because we want them to. Accept the parts of your life that may be out of control as a result of loving someone who's engaging in addictive behavior. Going back to the drama triangle. You may be feeling a constant gnawing, worried that you, that, that, worrying that you, that you live with every day. You may find yourself being asked for money often, feeling guilty if you say no. Perhaps you're watching everything you say and do in order to keep peace in your home and not make the, the addict angry. Or you may ask, or you may be asked to do favors for the addict on a constant basis, such as watching ki their kids or doing errands for them, and, and you may not know how to say no. Borrowing the car is another one. There's, we could build a big list if we wanted to. Discover how to love them in a healthy way. There's an effective way to deal with the addicted person in our life. Just as there are ways that are, are, are only ineffective but, but, but also be dangerous, learning to distinguish between them can save you a lot of time and also produce much healthier results for you and your addicted loved one. An example of that would be learning how to set the boundaries uh, and, and, and appropriate boundaries and the important skills needed. We need to explore reasons why you have the problem doing that and then learn some assertive techniques that will help you say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. There's a, there's a context I'm beginning to share here that we now have to ask ourselves why we keep doing it. Why do we keep doing it? And I will say, we, many of us are addicted to enabling. Many of us like being needed. Many of us do it because we don't want to hear the yelling and screaming anymore. But that becomes our problem, not theirs. 
it's not their problem if we're, if we're continuing to enable and continuing to do for them. For whatever reason, it's our problem because we're not drawing the line and letting them feel the reality of, of things not as available to them. The only person we have control over is ourselves. We do not have control over anything, uh, over anything that the addictive person does. Many people choose to not believe this, but that it doesn't make it less true. Once you can really grasp the reality of this and live by it, your life will become much easier. You know, I have here the serenity prayer, right? It's a sense of, you know, God grant me the peace to accept what I can't change, the courage, the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. When we talk about emotional intelligence, the highest level of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. Self-awareness goes back to the codependent enabling part. Are we aware that we're falling back into regressed behaviors, pathological behaviors, because we have a need to be liked, we have a need to be needed, we have a need to just make them happy with us. That's sick. And we have to call ourselves out for that. Even in the moment it's a short-term temporal relief, it reinforces the pathology and it's harder to break the cycles after that. When we talk about the highest level of emotional maturity, the highest level of emotional maturity is detachment. Detachment. Where you can see something going on and recognize it's, it's wrong and it isn't right and not have it rob you of your joy. Not have it rob you of who you are. It's a very significant point. There's, there's six stages to this. But the final one is detachment. You know, from a point of uh, emotional intelligence, it's self-awareness. Detachment and self-awareness, that should be our mantra. We don't have to get caught into it. We can still love them and, and, and care for them, but not enable them. Cultivate your wisdom so that you know the difference between what you can and can't change, and stop trying to control or fix anyone other than yourself. You know, stop blaming the other person, become willing to look at ourselves, you know. How much of this is really my fault? Really, when we look at how much of this is my fault just by allowing certain things to be what they are. Not that we fall into a shame, but we begin to say, I gotta stop doing this, right? As easy and tempting as it may be for you to blame the addict in your life, for the struggles and suffering, there's actually more value in exploring what you may be contributing to this situation since that is the only thing you really can do anything about. Even though the addict has undoubtedly contributed his or her share of trouble, in some way you also have a part to play in what's going on. For example, you might be keeping the drama going by lending money to your addicted loved one or perhaps you're always you're, you're always willing to be there to listen and, and, and they tell you all about their problems they're encountering as consequences of their addictive behavior. Have you ever sat with your loved one and they're just kind of going on and on and on? You're thinking, well, we got, we got a connection here. And they're talking and they're crying, they're opening up and they're going on and on and on. And then they just leave. And you think, that was really great. But if nothing comes from it in the way of just in other words, they just have, especially if they're high, don't waste your time. They're not gonna remember it. They're not gonna feel anything that happened. It's okay for us to set boundaries and go to bed on time. That's taking care of yourself. But to stay up till 3 a.m. because they are, just because they wanna talk, no, model for them healthier behavior. 
And they may say, I can't believe you went to bed, you didn't stay up with me. Well, honey, if you get up with me at 5.30 when I get up, we'll do it tomorrow night. Right? Okay, I'm going to go down here to the bottom, number five here. Uh, just like most people, you might think that you need to help your addict loved one. You fear that if you don't provide help, they will end up in, in a worse predicament. And I think every one of us, every one of us fear if we don't keep helping, they're going to die. It's a horrible feeling. But I guarantee you, the more you keep helping them, they're going to die. The more you keep enabling, they're going to die. I can't tell you how many parents who've given money to their loved one and they went out and bought something and they didn't come home, they died, overdose. Don't think by feeding them continually what they need that you're going to keep them alive. All the research will show it doesn't work. What begins to work is when their life is, is rocked and they don't have the availability of resources and the things that made their life so comfortable, that's when things begin to change. You know, they're smarter than you think. And yes, we all have that fear inside, God forbid. But I think at times you'll find, we don't know what will always happen, but holding a boundary is really the will of God. Enabling them is not. Is not. And it's hard to get our head around that sometimes. When you help the addicts by giving money, allowing them to stay in your home, buying food for them on a regular basis, driving them places and going back on the healthier boundaries you have, already set with them, you're actually engaging in rescuing behavior that are not really helpful. Another term for this kind of unhealthy helping is what we all enabling, which we all know. When you can be as truthful as possible with yourself about your own enabling behaviors, you can begin to make different choices. So part of it is we have to own our issues and really repent from it and do something differently. Because we can't expect different changes if we keep fall, falling right back in the pattern as well. We, it's easy to blame the attic. They're the one that looks all messed up, but if we're continuing to provide everything they need, there's something wrong with us. And there's, and there, because they're not gonna change for that. Don't give in to manipulation. It has been said that the least favorite word an addict is to hear is no. And I, I think we can amen that. Some of these manipulations include lying, cheating, blaming, raging, guilt tripping others, as well as becoming depressed or developing other kinds of emotional or, or physical illnesses. There, you ever hear your, your child say, I'm gonna kill myself then. I'm just gonna kill myself. Now, when you hear that, does that scare you? Let me give you a statistic. When you hear them screaming, I'm gonna kill myself, they're probably not gonna do it. The ones you worry about are the ones that don't say it, but are very depressed. If they say, I'm gonna kill myself, they're trying to push your buttons and get what they want. And, it's, it's, and you have to pray for discernment and wisdom with that. We don't completely blow it off, but we definitely keep perspective of it where you can see through it and know what's going on. Does that, you make, does that make sense for you all? It's very important. Those that scream, I'm going to kill myself then. Ignore it and walk away. Don't even address it. 
Oh, you don't care I'm going to kill myself? Don't respond. They want to engage you. They want to keep that dynamic going. Ask yourself the most important question, number seven. It is important to understand that you might be just as addicted to your enabling behavior as the addict in your life is to his or her manipulation. And that in, when we talk about enabling, it is a kind of addiction that really needs to be called out because we so much want to help them and we mean well, but it also meets a need for us. That does demonstrate addictive behavior because we, we feel good once we've helped, even though it's clearly the wrong thing to do. Ask yourself, would my life be better if I wasn't consumed by behaviors that enable my loved one? You know, allow yourself to honestly answer and be aware of any feelings that come up. Know that self-care does not equal <laughs> selfish. Too many people get these two ideas confused. They think that if they practice healthy self-care and put themselves first, they are being selfish. Selfishness basically means that you want what you want when you want it, and you are willing to step on whomever you have to in order to get it. Self-care means you respect yourself enough to take a good care of yourself in a healthy, holistic way, such as making sure your physical, mental, and emotional and spiritual needs are met. I'm gonna read that again. It goes back to the whole definition of codependency and the treasures of our heart. Self-caring means that you respect yourself enough to take good care of yourself and in healthy, holistic ways, such as making sure your physical, mental, and emotional, spiritual needs are met. You know, as an adult, it is your job to determine what your needs are, and you are the only one responsible for meeting those needs. Rebuilding our own life, codependent enabling free. The best way to come out of your own addictive behavior, such as enabling and people pleasing, is to focus on your own life. Rebuilding your life so that you can feel a greater sense of happiness and fulfillment. Don't wait until the situations are bad. Reach out now. When those who love people with any type of addictive behavior finally reach out for help, they have usually been dealing with the situation for a long time. I think we can have an amen there. If you have been waiting to see whether things would get better and they have not, please consider getting help now before things become worse. If the situation is just beginning, it is best for you to, to get some support as soon as you can so that you don't make the mistakes that could be made, uh, make things more difficult. The, the, the key to all this is, I think, it, it's kind of a paradox because when we talk about improving the relationship, it doesn't sound like improving the relationship, does it? It sounds like we're taking control of the relationship and we're going to be loving and we're going to be happy and we're going to live again and we hope they're going to join us but we're not going to get wrapped into the cycle of dysfunction and manipulation and control. But we're gonna be okay. Remember, the, the level of, of detachment is the highest level of maturity. The level of, the level of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. When you feel yourself losing yourself in it, pull back, set the boundaries. Be, pull back and understand what you need to do. Go for a drive. Don't give in to this. See, we have to learn, too, how to break habits. We have habits. You know, often we call them conditioned responses. When they act a certain way, we're right there. But we are gonna do all we can to not let that ever happen again. So, any questions, any thoughts? 
curious what your thoughts are when you're not only dealing with someone who has the addiction, but they also have the mental illness, such as my son with bipolar. And yes. so it's such a fine line because, you know, it's like he's in sober living and I found a facility for him that's, you know, $1,200 a month. And find out first 30 days, oh, you're not allowed to work. Okay, well, how's that going to get paid? So you pay. Hmm. Then, you know, oh, it's going to take a while to get a job. Well, pay again. Then, you know, here we are now, and then he just had a manic episode, so now he's not working. And it's like, you know, that fear of, is he going to get kicked out because he can't pay? He's 19 years old. Or do I say, hey, he's making great progress. He's six months clean from uh -huh. going to different places to you know, is, this, is this like a co-occurring co program, dual diagnosis? Agape. Okay. 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 If they know he has that diagnosis, they better work with him if they took him. I mean, they can't. I, I find too many problems where they, they, people get kicked out, mm -hmm. and it's so wrong. Mm -hmm. So wrong. Yeah. And it's just, it's painful. It's, but when you have a mental illness, you do have to handle it a little bit better. But they're still bright. They're still manipulative. They still want what they want. Mm -hmm. So we can still hold the lines and the boundaries. Um, a manic episode uh, obviously can be controlled, hopefully, with neuroleptics and keep them in a better place. But the hope would be that there's enough cognitive dynamics going that they, they know what they need to do to get well. It seems like every time he has to start working, something happens. Right. So that's an interesting, Isn't that that's an interesting so you know, prediction. Like, oh, yeah. do yeah. I, you know, yeah. do I, you know. Well, that's like a very I, interesting point. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, if, 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 has he worked before? Um, yeah, I mean, he worked quite a bit before he started, you know, really using it. Okay. So. What's his drug of choice? Uh, marijuana, a little oh. bit of cocaine. Okay. And some drinking. Yeah. He was an athlete school and wow. senior year everything changed and then he is one of the ones that attempted suicide and kept on saying oh I'm just going to kill myself I'm just going to kill myself and three weeks after he started college attempted suicide. Was it was it a, what, what did he do if I may ask? Um, he took a bunch of his Vyvanse and tried to cut his wrist. Wow was, was he having a manic episode as well? That would make, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah wow I'm sorry. Yeah. That's devastating. In six months, and he's, yeah. he's making progress. Yeah. But it's hard because he's young, and you know, mm -hmm. you're talking about that cut off part. That's the struggle yeah. for me. He doesn't yes. ask me for anything huh. at all. Huh. But um, then I am kind of there to be like, hmm. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll pay. I'm, you know, he's not asking me to pay. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing it because I feel like it's the right thing to do. Does he understand why he's in treatment? He's um, actually just a couple weeks ago, I mean, was great. I mean, like on step nine, working on amends, he's got a sponsor, all the mm -hmm. stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. um, at church, you know, interviewed for a media position here. Mm -hmm. And then here it is two weeks later, it's not at church. It's just, mm -hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, he's kind of a mess right now, but we're working with him. Yeah, yeah. I think part of Debbie's fear like understandably is like how is he ever going to be out there and be able to make it on his own and she has to feel like she's engaged and enmeshed in that and can't take her own life back and so yes. i adopted him from russia 
so oh, wow. stuck in this place, right? Yes. And it's yes. very difficult to know how to get out. You know, I, I would, I, I just, with a lot of information not known, I think he's, he's, he can come through this, especially if he had a good high school experience up to, up to the time of using. You know, there's, he, he could come through this. He could have a very normal life, you know, just staying on his meds and regulating his, you know, his sleep patterns and taking care of himself, eating right. He really can. It's, and that's, it's hard because you, you want to you wanna save him the pain of a lot of things to get through this, but he's going to have to walk through this is where he grows up and becomes yeah. a man, you know. You know, the, the issue of having these manic episodes, it, it sounds like there's a party that questions if they're real. Well, they are because my daughters, I have five grandkids and two older daughters, and um, he came to the house just recently and, like, well, I, I told him, hey, your sisters are here and your nieces and nephews, and so he walked in the door and he, he started talking a mile a minute. And mm -hmm. I said, hey, Rye, um, why don't you ask Ashley and Spencer how things are going? And, and then he was gone, but he's not using. He's, he's staying clean, they said, and um, mm -hmm. everybody loves him, and he's like, so is there is there a pattern to work in these, in these episodes? Um, the issue of work? I would say yes. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like every time he gets a job and starts it, he can't maintain he it. He doesn't want to maintain it, and I don't know if it's just the mm -hmm. fact of the commitment of being there and doing something he doesn't want to do, and then it, mm -hmm. an episode. But he goes to great happens. lengths. I mean, he like came back and interviewed at Chick Fil A and literally told them his whole story, got his job back, and then he's like, oh, man, it's kind of stupid. Now i got to drive 45 minutes over to just Chick-fil-A. Now he's looking at Home Depot. You know, he doesn't want to go back to college. Um, yeah. you know, so, so I don't know. Can I ask you like a, a professional kind of clinical question? Because sure. I've heard this from, you know, um, people in the industry before that young men, maybe even women under 25 or maybe even 30, but I've heard 25, that they get these diagnoses, and a lot of times they'll say, well, we don't really know, we can just say this might be it because he hasn't matured yet, there's addiction, there's things involved, yeah. it could be depression, it could be, yes. it might be bipolar, but they, it, it, it might not be just, you know, a conclusive diagnosis, is that true? Or does these things just kind of, can they grow it, out know, of it and mature their way out of it? it it's hard to, to diagnose him sight unseen. Um, but the psychiatrist is working with him. He must have seen enough evidence to put that on him. You have often you have you have drug-induced manic episodes, right? You have chemical imbalances that could trigger it. Um, I will say this: in my opinion, the bipolar diagnosis is the most misdiagnosed one out there because it's easy to throw it on somebody, but it's often it's often not the case. I would say that. I mean, that you have those that are really pronounced. You have those, you know, you have cyclothymic factors. I mean, there's criteria you have to have to get a bipolar, and, and they're, they're pretty stringent. And if that's not matched, it's a terrible label to put on anybody, you know. But, but again, if he's on the right medicines, he can have a very normal life with that. I mean, many, many do very well. And, and many times it can improve over time. You know, you have bipolar two versus one, and, you know, it, was he diagnosed with two or one? They, they, so he has ADHD. Okay. Adopted him from Russia when he was eight months old. Yeah. He, um, uh, they did neurofeedback on him mm -hmm. a ton when he was in Chattanooga, and he's off of his Vyvanse, can focus more, and mm -hmm. the psychiatrist wanted him off of the stimulant. Yes. And 
they do believe that like he's right now experiencing like his first manic without using or anything. So mm. they're working with him. Okay. And, and a psychiatrist is involved? Mm -hmm. So he has an appointment tomorrow. That's good. They, they actually reached out to me to get his psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. so. Good. Good. Yep. I will, I will pray because, I mean, I, I, I would be encouraged. It's going to come along. You don't have to over-accommodate him. You know, he, he wants to be treated as a man. Let's let him. Let, let's treat him like a man. You know, the work things. If, if there's monies that he earns, I mean, is was he committed to earning a certain amount of what this is going to cost? Um, honestly, no. I mean, he was willing to go to a really inexpensive sober living mm -hmm. and do it on his own. Um, I knew he kind of wanted to come back to Atlanta and found about Agape, and so he talked to them. And, mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. But it wasn't, the finances wasn't bought out too much. Mm -hmm. But now that he's in it, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's easy. I can go ahead and just keep yeah. paying the money. But then there's no skin in the game. Right. He's just living. Well, that's where he does, I mean, if he has any spending money or whatever, he needs to earn that. Yeah, I don't give him a dime. Yeah. I do not give him a dime. Mm. So. Yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough call, but... Just pray God give you wisdom and discernment that something will show itself, you know. Hey, we're going on a cruise. We got married almost a year ago. Hey. <laughs> we're going on a cruise for, to celebrate our one-year anniversary. Well, congratulations. Two kids that have been diagnosed with bipolar, two kids in rehab, one's in California, <laughs> one's here. Life is, life is crazy. I love it. I love it. You're just yeah, You're taking just, it back. That's right. <laughs> Amen. That's, and you, you'll, be, you'll be more effective by doing that. That's great. Anybody else? Yes. I really resonated with when you were talking about detachment because I've been dealing with this for 20 some years with my son and I finally got to the point where I would call it, I would just become numb. Mm -hmm. That's what I called it. Yes. So that it couldn't kill me, you know, every mm -hmm. time something went wrong. And But I, I how do you... How do you make that boundary if you're only going to be numb with this situation? You know, like I find it just starts yeah. seeping into other parts of, of my life because it's so hard to maintain that. Yes, it is. I, I would encourage you, numb I don't think would be the right one I would hope for you. I would hope that you have a peace, but you're not letting it overtake you. You see what's going on. You can't control it. You can't change it, but you don't have to take it on. The numbness is, your, your, that's the empathy, right? And what does empathy do? It paralyzes us. Yeah. Compassion empowers you. Empathy paralyzes you. So the numbness is a, is a coping mechanism to get through it. But I, I, I pray that you can rise above this and realize there it goes again, but you're not taking it on. Yeah. It's, it, there's not enough of you to take it on. And sadly, even if you did, it doesn't benefit. No. But that's where you got to take care of yourself and fill your own tank. And yeah, because I, I just finally retired after working like 45 years, and I didn't picture my retirement was yeah. going to be like this. Yes. You know, he just was living with me for a while again, and all the fights and yelling, and, you know, it's like yeah. you just have to have a coping mechanism. Yes. But again, you also don't have to put up with that. Easier said than <laughs> it is. That's where you need a, That's where a support system comes in. Yeah. 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 There isn't an easy ABC one two three, but but I think we, as we grow and understand and become more 
able to see what we are, what, how we can manage this differently, it makes a lot of difference. Just hearing other people mm -hmm. helps because I don't really know anyone that's going through this, you know, like yeah. my siblings or friends or whatever. And it's, it's hard for them to understand. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is good. I'm going to keep coming. Yeah, good. Thank you. <laughs> Anybody else? Rick, I have a question. Yeah. What are the experts saying now is the average age that the male brain develops versus the female brain? And then I got a secondary question to your answer. Until it's fully developed? Yeah. Well, you know, I think what, what I, the statistics will show 25, you know, for, the male, the, for the male. I think the female is a little bit like 23, I think, 22 is what last I read. So with that, because I've heard some people ask me this, I haven't had to answer them. Well, if the male brain doesn't develop until 25, I've got to assist them. Mm -hmm. and they're in essence enabling them because their brain hasn't developed yet. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's a that's a great point. That's a great point. They're able to function fine. They're making choices for what they want to do. You don't have anything in assisting would only be needed if they're clearly disabled. But how we grow is our own personal successes and experiencing that ways. I mean, the you know the the, the brain will will fully mature, but really. How many have seen a marked difference between a 23-year-old and a 26-year-old, really? You know, it, there's a point where you kind of, you, you can't step in and, and help it along. You just have to know the maturity of that child. You have to know really their, their sincerity, their motivation. But you never want to enable them to not take the steps and put in the sweat equity to benefit who they, who they later become. There's a part of them that, I don't, I don't play into that because there's enough there that I'm watching to see what they're capable of. What about how they say when the brain stops maturing from the time they start using, do you believe that is true? Oh, absolutely. That's an absolute fact. I mean, there, there's, today I have a guy that's been using for uh, probably over 20 years. He's now 60, and I'll tell you, I mean, he used in high school, college, you know, on and on. There are times, I swear, he is, he is 15 years old. And I have to treat him as a 15-year-old and then, and then pull him back into his, into his, into his age, the appropriate age. Yeah, they do. They'll regress. And they, they basically go catastrophic thinking, all bad, all good, you know, very childlike, very powerless, manipulative. You know, and, and that's kind of part of the regression that they go through. But you have to look at the, the emotional arrest that takes place from the time they begin to lean on substances and not ha allow their emotions to experience them with them. Yeah, very much. I got a question. We've had several parents in our support groups that um, the parents have set boundaries and the kids choose not to have any contact with them. Don't call me. I don't want to talk to them anymore. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've kind of said maybe text them here. <coughs> a week or something, just uh, I love yes. you thinking about you or something like that. And then some of them where the parents, I mean, the kids have just blocked them so they can't be in, get in touch with them at all. What do you suggest? And these parents are hurt. You know, they've set yeah. the boundaries and their kid won't do it, have anything to do with them anymore. Yeah, it's they're punishing the parents. Mm -hmm. And so that will run its course, I believe. It will run its course. And uh, you don't want to chase the parent, the child down. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, that's what they, that's what they want. 
but they're, you know, they're just, they're, it's, it's, it hurts the fact they're doing that to us, but if there is a way of connecting regularly just to say, I love you, hope you're doing well, it, it, it's, it shows that you're reaching out in any way you can. If you know where they live, send them something or whatever, but, but it's not something that you have to bend over backwards and apologize for setting boundaries and, and, and saying no. else? Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you guys very much.